0: grateful to be filling in um, the pulpit this morning. Uh, Our passage is Galatians 3, 25 through 29. It's on page 974 in the Pew Bible. So as you're turning there, um, as we have many visitors, uh, we're, we're just jumping into Galatians, kind of in the middle of the book. Normally we go through one whole book and Mark preaches verse by verse through that. He's going through Ephesians right now, but this morning we're just jumping into the middle of Galatians. Galatians 3, 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for being a God who has given us a sure covenant in the blood of your Son who's made sure promises throughout history and, and have been ke- faithful to keep them. We pray that this morning we would know better the rock in Christ you have given us and how we are to stand upon him. Pray that my words would be true. I pray that they would pierce the hearts of all of us, myself included, this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, being able to put things into categories is important. It's fundamental to interpreting the world and, and being a human. Uh, we, we can't function if we don't use categories. If, if I needed to staple something and I asked Zamir to bring me a stapler and he walked in and, and brought me a horse, that wouldn't be very helpful. Uh, He can bring me any kind of stapler, but I I need that category of stapler. I need something that will drive a staple through the piece of paper I'm using. Uh, We're we're constantly making good and legitimate distinctions. Uh, This morning, it's a good thing that your kids ran in and said, happy Mother's Day to mom and not to dad. They distinguish between parents. Uh, Husbands, it's a good thing that you distinguish between your wife and every other woman. Uh, It's a good thing on your drive here that you distinguish between red and green on traffic lights. Uh, God has not only placed things into categories, but he's made categories. We are, first of all, fundamentally different in a different category from God. There's a creator-creature distinction. There's a difference between us, created humans, and God. He's created good distinctions in male and female. From the very beginning of the Bible, we see God distinguishing between things. Uh, Throughout the Bible, we see God calling Israel to be a separate nation. God has made good distinctions. So, is Paul in this text advocating that we eliminate all those good distinctions that God has made? Is he really saying that the difference between Jew and Gentile between man and woman, between slave and free, are gone? This distinction between Israel and every other nation that has existed at this point in Galatians for thousands of years, uh, this good distinction between men and women, is he saying that that's no longer a good and valid distinction? This division between slave and free, is he saying that, Galatians, your your whole economic system, just gone? How can Paul say these kind of outrageous things? He can say them not because they're not legitimate or even good distinctions, but because with regard to salvation, these distinctions do not matter. The only thing that matters is Christ. If you're in Christ, then your membership in his new covenant trumps every other distinction. Christ is so perfect— and his saving work is so effectual that nothing we are or nothing we do can affect or influence his saving grace. So in the new covenant, the only distinction that matters is whether or not you are in Christ. In the new covenant, the only distinction that matters is whether or not you're in Christ. So since we're jumping into the middle of Galatians, let's, let's walk through this text together verse by verse uh, to see how Paul can make this statement that there's neither Jew nor Greek. And then we'll look at three features of this new covenant community in which we are all one in Christ. So this, this is the, the end of a long argument where Paul's showing that works, specifically old covenant works of the law, do not play a role in one's standing before God. So we pick up in verse 25, we see that Paul calls the law and all the rules that the Jews in Israel had to keep, uh, he calls it a guardian or a tutor. Paul's saying that it was temporary and it had a purpose, and that purpose was to lead us to Christ. Kids, do you think you'll be in school forever? It might feel like that sometimes, depending on where you are in school, but no, the goal is that you graduate Uh, Hopefully, if you go through school, you are matured and brought to a point where you don't need to go to school anymore. Well, Paul is saying that God has accomplished his goal. We don't need the tutor anymore. God's accomplished what the old covenant intended to do, bring about Christ. Jesus, God's son, was born in the nation of Israel, and he fulfilled the law. This is what Paul means when he says faith has come. He's contrasting being under the law with being freed by faith in Christ. While elsewhere Paul asserts that God's moral law is good, the old covenant is no longer in effect. In verse 26, we see that in Christ, we too are sons of God. God has a... Throughout the Old Testament, he had a special relationship with the nation of Israel. He called them his son. But now since Christ has come, God's true and only begotten son, we can be sons in Christ. Not in the nation of Israel, not in the picture, but in the true son, we, through union with him, can be called God's sons and daughters. We are his body. We are so closely linked to Christ that we are considered one with him. We are called God's sons and daughters. So who is this we that I'm talking about? Who's in Christ? In, in verse 27, we get the answer to that. It's those who are baptized into Christ. In baptism, we declare and by faith participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus. As we're plunged under the water, we're symbolizing our death of the old sinful person, the person that deserved death, the person that Jesus paid the penalty of death for. And as we're brought up out of the water, we're saying we've been raised to new life in Christ, just as he was raised. So if you're a Christian, the old person you once were has died, and the new person God has made you is born. Paul uses the language of clothing in this verse, of putting on clothing, putting on Christ. This new person we are is clothed in Christ. So one thing that means is that we look like him as we live. We we kind of have Christ's outfit on. We appear as a Christian. But more importantly, we look like Christ to God. Christ's perfect righteousness has been given to us. If you're a Christian, no matter what you look like sitting next to the person in the pew, no matter what you look like to your family who's known you your whole life, no matter what you look like in the eyes of old friends who knew you before you were a Christian, to God, you look like his perfectly righteous son. Therefore, since we look like Christ to God, Paul can say that there's no difference in righteousness before God from one person to another. Men are not more holy than women, rich are not more righteous than poor. The black person is no more or less saved than the white person. The person who grew up and went to church every single day, and the person who would have laughed if you invited them to church, if they are now in Christ, they are both equally saved. Our union with Christ levels the playing field. All are one in Christ. No one can ever look at another church member and say, I'm more righteous in God's eyes than she is. Finally, in verse 29, Paul makes this concluding statement that if we're Christ's, then we're Abraham's offspring. But that's a pretty weird thing to say immediately after saying there's neither Jew nor Greek. He brings up the father of all Jews. He brings up Abraham because there are two communities related to Abraham. There are two communities related to Abraham, the old covenant community, the Jewish people and the new covenant community. That's us, the church. So we're going to look at three distinct features of this new covenant community that we'll find in this passage. The first of these three distinct features of the new covenant community is that faith is the only condition for membership in this new covenant community faith is the only condition. Second, believers' baptism is the entrance marker into this new covenant community. And third, the promised blessings are spiritual in this new covenant community. So the condition of faith, the entrance marker of baptism, and spiritual promises. So first, faith is the only membership condition. Uh, Abraham, as, as, as Andrew read this morning, was a man in the Old Testament who God made promises to. One of those promises that we read was that Abraham would have many, many offspring. Well, the question is, who are Abraham's offspring? There are two ways to be considered related to Abraham. You can be related to him by flesh or by faith. Abraham's relatives by flesh were the Jewish people under the old covenant. If you're from a, a, a big family in a small town, there can be benefits. Um, I know someone who's from a very big family and there's a, a pub in her small town that has a cover charge. That means you have to pay in order just to get in the door. Um, but if she says that she's from her family, she gets in for free. Her family's so big and influential... They know her, she can get in for free. She bears the family name. She has the family resemblance and she gets the benefits. Jews who came from Abraham's lineage bore the mark of circumcision. They kept God's law and they inherited the land of Israel. That was how you entered the old covenant community and stayed in it. You were born into it and you kept the law. This community was physical and had real physical blessings that God gave to them, but they were dependent on keeping the law. If they kept the law, they got to stay in the land, but if they broke the law, if they sinned, they were punished by exile. They were driven out of the land. This is a a brutal and a fearful way to live, constantly being under the law. Imagine being in a household where being punished by exile is the, is the punishment for breaking your parents' rules. If you are a six-year-old and you disobey at dinner, you are kicked out of the house. You'd constantly be living in fear, never sure if you've broken the wrong rules, and never sure if that rule you broke was strike three and your father's going to kick you out. Parents, husbands, wives, are you running your household like this? You're probably not kicking your children out or your wife out, but are you parenting in a legalistic way? Do you put people in emotional exile when they sin against you? Since we're in the covenant of grace, not a legalistic law covenant, shouldn't we show grace to people in our households? Shouldn't we make those who we love feel loved no matter what they do? Well, biblical and, and and godly love can show discipline and should discipline and, and correct, uh, it's never ever fickle. A household that's characterized by grace not only honors God by reflecting the grace that he's shown us, it also allows that household to flourish and to be joyful and form a relationship of trust between one another and a freedom from fear. So the Jews, however, in this old covenant, we burdened by the law. It wasn't easy or light. That's what Christ contrasts his ministry with when he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And compared to what? To the old covenant, this burdensome law. It was heavy, but it was also meant to be temporary. Temporary and earthly. It served its purpose when it brought about Christ. When Jesus came and accomplished his work, the old covenant was no longer needed. The, 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 the promises in this covenant were also physical promises Abraham so contrast that with spiritual promises of the new covenant. The physical promises mean that in this covenant Abraham has many relatives who are in hell today. Both John and Jesus tell the Jews not to appeal to their physical relationship to Abraham for spiritual blessings for being In good standing with God. John says explicitly, do not say we have Abraham as our father. God will raise up stones as children for Abraham before you wicked people just appeal to him as your father. And Jesus says you can even have Abraham as your relative and have your actual father be the devil. So there's that one way of relating to Abraham physically. But there's another more important family resemblance one can have to Abraham. You can be considered an offspring of Abraham if you share the faith of Abraham. And if you share that faith with Abraham, you get the benefits that Abraham got because of his faith. We, we, we can understand this relationship with Abraham, and we, we say something similar, possibly when a, a mother, uh, maybe when a, a son does something maybe disobedient that her husband does he'll say he's his father's son uh maybe in a more positive light when a son does something good a dad will say that's my boy um when a father when a boy behaves like his father we could say that he's truly acting like a son he was always a son physically but when he shares in other traits he shares sonship in a deeper more meaningful way We then are considered sons and daughters of Abraham when we have the faith of Abraham. Paul says earlier in this chapter, in chapter 3 of Galatians, uh, in verse 7, that it it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So if a person shares Abraham's DNA and keeps the law, he was a member of the old covenant community. If a person shares Abraham's faith in Christ, he's a member of the new covenant community. And that's the object of our faith. That's the object of Abraham's faith. It's Christ. We and Abraham are saved in the same exact way, through faith in Christ. Because there's only way that righteousness comes, and that's in Christ alone. He alone kept God's law. He alone is perfectly righteous. He alone paid the full price and offered an acceptable sacrifice to God. Christ alone is and always has been the only way to be saved. Abraham was saved because he believed in Christ. And this faith that Abraham had, this faith that all New Covenant believers have, is a whole self, a whole-souled belief in Christ. It's a a mental knowledge of and a willful and heart-level trust of God and his love for us in Christ. Faith is a mental knowledge of and a willful and heart-level trust of God and his love for us in Christ. Those who share in the faith of Abraham have more than a mere knowledge of Jesus. They know and trust in his righteousness alone. And, and we willingly and joyfully submit to him as Lord. This kind of faith is the condition For our salvation. But it's not the grounds for our salvation. I just want to make that distinction there. Every believer in the new covenant has faith. That's condition for membership in the new covenant. But it's not the grounds of our salvation. God doesn't save us because we've mustered up enough faith. He's not rewarding us for something we've merited by becoming faithful. He grants us faith, and that is the instrument through which he communicates his saving grace to us. Faith delivers us from the burden of the law to a joyful keeping of the moral law. God demands moral perfection, but it's a standard that none of us can meet. If you add anything, any work of the law to our salvation... The whole thing collapses. It's no longer a joyful, gracious, uh, freeing thing. It becomes burdensome. And that's exactly what the, the people that Paul's writing against in Galatians were doing. They were adding law to grace. The fact that we're saved by grace, his sovereign grace alone, removes the burden of keeping the law totally from us. This doesn't mean we, we don't keep the law at all. God affirms, or Paul affirms elsewhere that the law is good. Jesus himself gave many commands. If, if you do the McShane Bible reading, uh, then this morning we read James 1, and we saw that the law becomes a law of liberty. It does that because we are freed from its burden in Christ. So faith, not ethnic background, not performance of any kind— Not any inherent goodness in us is the condition for membership of the new covenant. Faith is the decisive factor in our relationship to God. That brings us to point two. Believer's baptism is the entrance marker into this new covenant community. Believer's baptism is the entrance marker. And since faith is the condition... Baptism as an entrance sign into the new covenant should only be performed by people who have faith. To administer baptism to anyone else, including infants, is to mix up who is in this new covenant. It's actually bringing back old covenant conditions and old covenant ideas that family lineage gains some favored standing before God. But as we saw, members of the new covenant are related to Abraham... To one another and to Christ by faith alone, not genetics. Notice how Paul relates faith in Christ with baptism. There there are these two parallel statements in the text. On one hand, you have as many of you as were baptized, and that's the same group in Paul's mind as those who have put on Christ. If you had a Venn diagram, those two categories of baptized and people who have faith, in Paul's mind, They're not sort of overlapping. They would be one perfect circle. Everyone who believes has been baptized, and everyone who has been baptized is an active, practicing believer in Christ. This is a consistent pattern in the New Testament. Baptism and faith are always intimately linked together. There's no category in the New Testament for people who have been baptized into the church who have not yet professed belief in Christ. So all the visible church in Galatia are people who have professed faith and been baptized. And this is important for how the church in Galatia is run and for how we operate as a church today. We at Warnell Road Baptist Church organize our church in relation to that idea that we have all been baptized upon profession of faith. And that's a, a biblical thing and a very beautiful thing that we run our church this way. It's a good thing. The reason we're Baptists is because we see that baptism is associated with the faith of believers. We practice believers' baptism. That means we believe that the pattern for the ordinance that Jesus gave us was to believe, and after belief, you're baptized. And because we treat every member as a baptized, born-again believer, we interact with one another differently, and we govern ourselves differently than some of our, our our faithful brothers in other denominations, so our, that means our church is congregational. Specifically, we're a congregationally ruled, elder-led church. That means that the congregation has final authority. We do have elders. We have faithful men who have been who we, as the congregation, have appointed to lead us, to guide us, and to work hard to help govern the church. But ultimate authority lies in the hands of the congregation alone. And the most important factor, the most important way this authority is held is in voting members in and out of the church. Since we we see that overlapping Venn diagram that, that everyone's been baptized and everyone is a faithful believer in the new covenant, the congregation has a responsibility to keep it that way. To seek the purity of the gospel and the purity of the church that the gospel creates. So, in other words, the congregation gets to say, we think this, is a pers- this person is a Christian as we're bringing them in. We get to affirm that. Or, more fearfully, we get to say, this person is no longer behaving as a Christian, so we can't affirm them as members of the new covenant anymore. We do that fearfully when we have to vote someone out. Unless they're moving to another church. That's fine. We're okay with that too. Um, so, So Paul, since that's the case, the congregation as a whole has that responsibility, that's why Paul appeals to the congregation as a whole in Galatians to throw out heretics. He doesn't appeal to one leader, one pope, or one bishop, or a small group of elders. He tells the whole congregation to use their authority to protect the purity of the gospel and the purity of the new covenant community. So, do you see how believers' baptism and congregational authority go hand in hand? Since every member of the church is a professing Christian, the congregation can be trusted with that authority to rule on that most weighty matter in the world, someone's salvation. if, if this was a mixed community, if there were some professing believers who had the law written on their hearts, who loved the Lord their God, and some people who were unregenerate and uh, were, were living in sin and, and had no saving relationship to God, we, we couldn't be as one congregation trusted to judge in these matters. So church, you've been given a responsibility, so take it seriously Out of love for your church, know the gospel and know one another. We can't guard the purity of the gospel and the purity of the church if we don't know both of those things. So uh, my charge is to press into this new covenant community, Warnell Road Baptist Church. Invite one another over. Make time in your day every day to read and know God's word. And make time in your week to be with believers. God's given us one day in seven to gather with believers. But I would urge you to to find one more day in the week. One more day a month to invite believers over to your house. To go visit other believers. To meet with believers at a coffee shop. Know the church that you have been wonderfully and, and, and miraculously joined to through covenant membership. The old covenant, as I said, the people who were related to Abraham by the flesh, was a mixed covenant. It had some people who had saving faith, but also some that did not. This new covenant is not a mixed covenant. So, if you would turn with me to Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, it's on a, a page in the Pew Bible. Uh, Jeremiah 31:33 to 34. I'm going to look at that for a moment, so... I would... I encourage you to turn there. Um, as we read this, these two verses, ask yourself, is this describing a mixed covenant or a covenant made up of believers only who know the Lord? This is a promise of the new covenant made to Jeremiah. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so this passage brings us to our final point, the promised blessings that are spiritual in the new covenant community, the promised blessings. We have two clear blessings we can see in this passage. We see in this covenant that has been made in Christ's blood, the first is regeneration, and the second is the forgiveness of sins or justification. We see it says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. That's describing regeneration. And it says, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember sins no more. That's justification. So first, the prophet is describing regeneration, being born again. We're all born physically once when we entered this world. And when we're brought into the new covenant, it's such a radical change within us that it can only be described as being born again or being made a new creation. Later in Galatians, in Galatians 6.15, Paul says that circumcision and uncircumcision count for nothing. But what does count is a new creation, he says. What's important are not old covenant distinctions that couldn't change your heart. Circumcision could not change your heart. All people, Jew, Gentile, slave, master, man, woman are born with hearts of stone, hearts that hate God's law. And this old covenant that God made with Israel couldn't do anything about it. It gave us a law. It gave them a law, but no ability to keep it. It would be like throwing someone out on on an ice rink without skates, without a stick, without gloves, and saying, go play hockey. Go keep up with with the Flyers. Go Philly. Uh, All people need new hearts. We have stony hearts. We need new hearts. They need to be made new, and only in the new covenant in Christ is this achieved. When God sovereignly brings us into the new covenant, he gives us a new heart that loves his law, the law that was once a burden, the Ten Commandments, that that produced fear, judgment, condemnation on us because we did not keep them, now becomes something joyful that we can keep because we're not keeping them for righteousness, but we're keeping them because we have already been made righteous. This regeneration is a work of God, and it's associated with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Going back in Galatians, in in chapter 3, 14, Paul writes that so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to us, the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The spirit is the promise. That is how we are regenerated. We are born again. The spirit now guides us. And so we keep his moral law. He bears fruit in us. In in Galatians 6, you have famous passage about the fruit of the spirit he produces these things that only the spirit can produce the second promise we get uh, that's made to abraham is justification the forgiveness of sins in other words we are now made righteous we have a righteous standing before god paul makes it clear that this is a promise to the faithful children of abraham also, in this very chapter, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. How are we, the nations, blessed alongside Abraham? We've been justified alongside him, our sins have been totally forgiven. While the old covenant community lived in fear, in constant, this constant burden of the law, we live in freedom, at peace with God. Sin is worthy of punishment. You and I have all sinned against God, and that sin deserves wrath. If our sin remains on our account, we have no peace with God. But the good news of the gospel is that all who trust in Christ have their sins laid upon Jesus on the cross, where he was crucified and then raised for our justification. Standing just before God gives us peace. The God of all creation loves you and works all things for your good. There's not a drop of wrath, not one sentence, not one line of condemnation that remains. I would urge you to use this to in your evangelism. When you're speaking with an unbeliever, you're speaking to someone that does not have or know that peace. They are actively burdened under their conscience. There's they they may try and do good, they may try and seek good things, but ultimately they are not satisfied people. They are Burdened under the law, their conscience is screaming against them that they are sinning against the holy God. Use this truth to your advantage in your evangelism and plead with them to repent and find peace in the Prince of Peace. Accompanying these two promises of justification and regeneration is the promise of eternal life. Apart from that promise of eternal life... Neither of those two blessings means very much. They'll be lost with death. But we are heirs, Paul says, to an inheritance. Not to a temporary earthly inheritance, not to a little piece of land, but to the whole world, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Heirs to the entire world and for all eternity. Paul writes in Titus 3 that being justified by his grace... We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that's not a, a hope as in, I really hope this is going to happen. It's a certain hope that we have in the future. So the, the three spiritual blessings were promised in this new covenant. Not the only three, but three of them are regeneration, justification, and eternal life. So then briefly, how should we live in the new covenant in light of these blessings? Since we're all justified by God in the same exact way, view one another as justified believers, loved by God. Value one another as, as heirs, as sons of the king of the universe, and be humble when we look at one another. We would be foolish to treat the son of a, of a principal at school, uh, to, to bully him or, or to treat him poorly. We how much more should we honor those who God calls children and who Christ calls friend? So seek unity also with one another. Seek unity with one another. We're united to Christ by faith. We are one with Christ and we are one body. Therefore, we should seek to be unified in our love and in our worship. But we also must seek to be unified in our differences and view our differences Rightly, Paul's not talking about a homogenous, uh, bland community where everyone looks exactly the same and everyone's differences are removed. Uh, Jeff preached a couple weeks, months ago on First Corinthians 12. First Corinthians 12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body Jews or Greeks slaves or free and all were made to drink of one spirit for the body does not consist of one member but of many if the foot should say because i am not a hand i do not belong to the body that would make it any less that would not make it any less a part of the body so you look elsewhere in Ephesians 5 for example Paul affirms the good distinction between man and woman, specifically in a marriage relationship. So, men, treat women like women. Don't treat them like your male friends. You would be insulting to your wife or to your female friend, single man, uh, if you treat a woman just like your college buddy. You honored moms this morning and will honor them for the rest of the day. That's a good thing to do. Wives, don't treat your husband like a child. Distinguish between your children and your husband. Pay him respect. Honor him. And also don't treat your children like adults. Don't expect them to live like you do. None of us do that. It's good to make those distinctions. Pay special respect to your elders, both the officers in this church and to those who are physically older and wiser than you. So be wise in all of your interactions and try to think how you can treat individ- each individual member of this church and out of this church with love and compassion and understanding. Uh, you would, it's a good thing to love Imogene and Caleb Hamilton differently. So love them as, as, as wise and as we're called to do. But despite these differences, we're never to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ as though though they are not co-heirs with Christ, loved by God and blessed by him. Therefore, reject worldly ideologies that seek to divide and disrupt the beautiful unity that can exist between different ethnicities, different genders, and different classes of people. Our mutual sinfulness, our need for salvation... And the salvation that's provided to us while we did not deserve it levels the playing field. It humbles us. The rich person and the poor person both need the same grace. The Asian immigrant and the Hispanic immigrant both need the same grace. And in Christ, all these people can walk together in love and in unity So reject political systems that classify people in unbiblical ways, redefine sin, and offer no redemption. Reject movements that glorify envy and encourage you to look at your brothers and sisters maliciously. God has given grace without distinction. We must love our brothers and sisters without distinction. Reject naturalistic, and unscientific claims that you are identified with your sexuality and you cannot change. The gospel is greater than that. Christ is a greater savior than that. The Holy Spirit can and does work miraculously in the hearts of people. He uses people's God-given differences to create a people that is beautiful and multifaceted, that... All pursue holiness together and always glorifies God. Lastly, show outsiders the beauty of this redemption and unity. Politics, philosophy, psychology cannot unify. No other system can create a community like the New Covenant community. Talk positively about it, invite people to see it up close. And call people to join it by joining in the faith of our father, Abraham. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for the new covenant you have made in the blood of your son. We praise you for taking a myriad of undeserving, unworthy sinful people from all backgrounds with all levels of of education and knowledge with various levels of of wealth with various worldviews and you have brought us together in Christ. Lord we pray that you would shape our worldview and conform it to your word do so by your spirit we are dependent upon you And we trust that you will deliver on these good and gracious promises. Promised to Abraham and given graciously to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.